When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite philosophy, history, mythology, pop culture podcast. I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. Laurel, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. So this is, I guess, part three of what turned into a series on classic Disney animation. So part one was we talked about Sleeping Beauty. Part two, we talked about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And we wanted to bring it home, and we felt like three parts to classic Disney animation just made sense. The number three feels really good. It feels really epic. It feels like we've done a trilogy. So we decided to tackle something that advanced sort of the fairy tale narratives that we were talking about that added a new layer, a new dimension to the fairy tale that added a more complexity to the princess being lost in the woods that we have seen in the other two episodes. And when we really debated which one of the classic iconic Disney feature animations that we wanted to do at the end of this now trilogy we came up with only one clear choice, and it was really easy to pick. And we are going to be discussing Alice in Wonderland. It's super awesome. We've been talking about doing an Alice podcast for a long time, I feel like. And it's something that I have been honestly hesitant to take on for so long because it's such a dense uh, wealth of material from the Disney movie to the original uh, books written by Lewis Carroll and to the incredible legacy that it has spawned, how do you even start? And I think the only answer to that is to jump down the rabbit hole and see where it takes you. So I'm excited to dig in uh, and talk about this big, expansive, beautiful, surreal, nonsensical adventure that Alice goes on. Uh, you've talked about how we kind of did this like a three-part series, like a trilogy on classic Disney animation, but I will say 
This isn't the first time we've touched on animation or touched on classic Disney, and it won't be the last. So while we may diverge from this in future weeks, uh, if there is a movie or a, a story that we haven't touched on that Disney did uh, a classic feature on that you want to hear more of, please let us know. So go back and check out our Beauty and the Beast. Go back and check out our Little Mermaid, our Lion King, our Aladdin, uh, and let us know if there is something that we're missing that you really, really want to hear. And we have also done Moana, but this right. is about the iconic, the classics, yeah. the, the ones that started it all. And we really wanted to talk about that. Laurel and I, just a quick public service announcement, are going on vacation next week. So we're not going to have a new podcast episode next week. Womp womp. And we will do our best to have one in the following week, though it's a very long vacation. But if you've been following us from the beginning, usually when we take a vacation, we want to tackle a story inspired by our vacation, as well as we'll be tweeting out photos and Facebooking things and Instagramming things. So you know how to follow us. Uh, you know, Laura will do her thing in a little bit and how to follow us. So follow us and you can see what we're doing on vacation. We apologize for the break. We haven't had a break since our wedding. We've done at least an episode a week. Most weeks we've recorded more. And it's time that we took a little time off. And we know you're sad, Midnight Myth fans, because you're the best podcast listeners and best podcast fans in the entire business. But rest assured, we will be back. You'll, you will get a Midnight Myth time machine uh, while we're away. So we will set those to publish while we're away. So you can still listen to our back catalog and you can still go through all our older episodes. You just won't have a new episode until we're back. And fellow fellow travelers on the path of the beam who are following us with the Wheel of Ka, we're going to try to get a Wheel of Ka out this month. The vacation is really mucking things up. Um, it may be early September. If we can get our schedules aligned and the book reading aligned, we'll try to bring it out in August, but there's a chance it might be late. Apologies in advance, but Laurel and I needed a break, yo. Yeah. So if you want to follow us, if you want to see what we're up to during the break uh, or otherwise and beyond, make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head over to the website, www.midnightmyth.com for blogs and extra content there. Uh, you can learn more about the Wheel of Ka. You can see some of our sources and inspiration, and you can sign up for our monthly email newsletter there on the website. Uh, the website also has a link to shop. We have tons of new merch for both the Midnight Myth and the Wheel of Ka. So if you want to support us, and if you want to support some fabulous Midnight Myth gear, definitely get your butt over to the merch store. And last thing is consider support, um, consider supporting us on Patreon. How do I say that? Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> consider patronizing us on Patreon uh, for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, your monthly donation helps us to pay for our web hosting fees, our advertising fees, our gear, and helps us make this podcast for you for free. There's a perk associated with each level of uh, support on Patreon. So please check that out and consider kicking in a couple of bucks a month to help us out. Let's start with a little recap of Alice in Wonderland. It may have been a while, dear Midnight Myth listeners, since you've seen the movie. And this is not going to go beat by beat for everything. But Alice in Wonderland, Alice in Wonderland, pardon me, came out July 26, 1951. It is a full-length Disney animated feature. It's based off of the book 
Alice in Wonderland and Alice's Alice, Adventures in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass, written by uh, Lewis Carroll in the mid nineteenth century, and it follows these tales of Alice, who is a not so good history student who falls asleep during her history lesson and chases a white rabbit down a rabbit hole. She's curious about this rabbit as it is saying that it's late, it has a pocket watch, and it's wearing trousers and a shirt. There she gets into this topsy-turvy world called Wonderland, where sometimes up is down, left is right, where that if she eats food, she magically changes the shape and size, and she encounters a whole host of interesting and curious characters, from the Dodo to Tweedledee and Tweedledum, the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, the Cheshire Cat ultimately culminating until she meets the Queen of Hearts. She has a brief interactions with the Queen of Hearts, who is just as mad as all the other characters that she meets, and ultimately gets sentenced to have her head chopped off, to which she barely escapes, realizing at the end that this is a dream, and she asks herself to wake up from this dream. Um, other great characters that she meets is the Caterpillar. She wanders through the woods where she sees all sorts of strange and interesting creatures. The, the movie has bits from both of the books, so it pulls from right. both. They are both a little bit different. And that is the story of Alice in Wonderland in a nutshell. Yeah, that's a great recap because it, it's interesting. It, it is a very episodic tale. Uh, there are a handful of chapters that feel like contained little stories that uh, do or do not contain a lesson. It's kind of up to us to puzzle out what the meaning of each one of those things are. And it doesn't feel like a traditional uh, beginning, middle, and end story necessarily, uh, but feels like wandering through uh, this sort of meandering uh, forest of adventure. The first story that it really reminded me of, and this is in an epic poetic sense, is it kind of reminds me of the Odyssey. Oh, yeah. In which Odysseus coming home from the Trojan War angers Poseidon and he gets lost at sea. All of his other shipmates end up dead in one facet or form. And Odysseus has to travel through all of these harrowing adventures to find his way back to Ithaca, where he is the king of Ithaca. And it feels very much like she's on a similar odyssey. Unexpected circumstances have conspired to strip her far from her home, and now she has to travel through this strange and wonderless world, wonderful world, pardon me, learning about it, but it is also both perilous. She sees magic and wonder that is both enticing, but it's also inherently dangerous to herself and her body on her journey ultimately back to home. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison because like the Odyssey, you could kind of take every single one of the episodes within Wonderland and uh, just sort of shimmy them around. They could all be in different places, uh, but there's some kind of internal logic that uh, defines how she goes through this world. And what the movie smartly does is keep her focused on that white rabbit, keep her uh, constantly uh, encouraged by this one curiosity to follow that white rabbit, the first uh, strange and unusual thing she sees, a rabbit in a waistcoat with a pocket watch. And that's what continues. That's the thread that continues throughout the entire story. And yeah, rather than a tight, contained beginning, middle and end, it's a huge episodic adventure where each little you know, adventure that she has ultimately in her journey back home could be its own movie or known narrative. Right, yeah. It really could stretch out into its own two-hour 
um, adventure. And I feel like it has this feel of an epic poem. Yeah. It has this feel of this larger than life tale that isn't bound by the conventional three act story structure. Though I do think that's there in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. I think we could read it in three acts, but I don't feel like that's the right read. I feel like it is stops on an adventure. The first stop being like falling down the rabbit hole. The next one being the doorknob. Then after that, she's in the ocean with the dodo. Then it's Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Right. And then it keeps going on and on. Then it's the flowers, the mad tea party. Then it's the mad tea party. And all of these things have these sort of um, reminiscent to Odysseus who first, you know, you know, meets the Cyclops and then he meets the sirens and then he meets a witch that turns all his men into pigs. And he keeps going through adventure after adventure to eventually he makes his way back home. Yeah. I love that. I'm really glad that you brought up that comparison. That's really cool. Um, so to kind of, uh, get some context around how we got Alice in Wonderland and how we got, uh, this iconic character of Alice, um, I want to go back to the genre that it's, uh, it's essentially part of, uh, the book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was published in 1865. Lewis Carroll's real name was Charles Lutwidge Dodgson. Uh, Lewis Carroll is actually a pseudonym, but I'm going to use Lewis Carroll for the rest of the podcast just to avoid confusion. Uh, But this is part of a genre known as literary nonsense. And this genre erupts out of the 19th century. So uh, Lewis Carroll was very much at the forefront of this. Other people who you would say are part of this are like Edward Lear, who wrote The Owl and the Pussycat, And even Dr. Seuss uh, later on would be considered literary nonsense. So that makes a little bit of sense there. Nonsense making sense. Uh, It's just the beginning of the rabbit hole. Nonsense making sense. I know. So literary nonsense really comes out of two uh, different traditions. One of those would be folk songs, rhymes, and games. Think hey diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle. Total nonsense, right? But it's something that we all know. You all know where it goes. You all know the dish runs away with the spoon. Uh, or Mother, Mother Goose's nursery rhymes. Sometimes these make sense, but most of the time they don't. Uh, but then it also, uh, literary nonsense incorporates elements of satire, especially courtly satire. So in order to qualify to be literary nonsense in the 19th century consumption of it, you have to have a balance between nonsense itself, the things that make no sense, and some kind of logic. You have to balance elements that have meaning with elements that negate meaning. So the best way to, the best analogy for this, I would say, is like a riddle with no answer or a joke with no punchline. Why is a raven like like a writing writing desk? desk? There's a reason we don't get the answer to that riddle, because the setup makes sense, and it leads you to think that there is meaning. But at the end of the day, there isn't. There's no answer. And if you give us the answer, then we're no longer dealing in nonsense. So obviously, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass are exemplars of this kind of genre, where they balance this sense of uh, total, surreal, confusing, topsy-turvy absurdity with an element of logic. Uh, And that will especially be important when we realize that Lewis Carroll uh, was a logician, was someone who studied logic, was a mathematician at Christ Church College at Oxford. 
And so every episode of Alice in Wonderland challenges Alice with some sort of puzzle or game or confrontation between uh, what's perceived as nonsense and what she internalizes as logic. Well, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. So logic we've talked about in brief. I mean, the idea of logic as a philosophical discipline, one which can help us discover the world, goes back to ancient Greece, and they called it logos. And the idea was that there was two basic ways to understand the world, mythos or myth, logos or logic. And logic would combine people perceiving aspects of the world with thought experiments. So you would look at the world, you would understand the world based upon what you saw, you would create a sentence or a form of language to describe and ultimately predict that natural phenomenon. Really good example of this, a basic logical equation in the ancient Greek sense that holds up under intense scrutiny is the sun rose from the east and it set from the west yesterday. It rose from the east and it set from the west the day before Logically, it will rise from the east and set from the west tomorrow. We can infer that based upon our direct observation, and it's logical to assume it will always do this. And this was something the Greeks came up with, not knowing what the fuck the sun was, not knowing what earth was, not knowing what gravity was, but they had deduced based upon these perceptions it will always behave this way. Yeah, there are these principles that we can agree upon, which is that it does this and it did this before, so it will probably do this again. Even if we're confused about the rest of those principles, these we can agree on. And this, I think, is what Lewis Carroll is playing with by putting Alice into all of these different situations. Uh, the, uh, the form of logic that I want to point to, especially that is in use in uh, Alice in Wonderland, is Aristotelian syllogism. Uh, So a syllogism is essentially a three-part logical argument where you have a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. It's deductive reasoning to form a conclusion based on agreed upon or assumed to be true principles. So one of these is similar to what you just said about the sun, but the other uh, example of this is major premise, all mortals die. Minor premise, all men are mortals. Conclusion, all men die. We can agree upon that. Absolutely. And so logic requires a basic set of presuppositions that are assumed. Some of those assumptions are that we all are perceiving the same thing. So we take the uh, argument with the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. That doesn't work when someone else says, hey, the sun is rising in the west and setting in the east. Right. Once that presupposition is gone, once that foundation, that the, the things that you are assuming to be true in order to enter into the logical equation are no longer true, that's when you have debate. That's when you have disagreement. What we see with Alice in Wonderland, it starts quite beautifully with Alice sitting in a tree with her beautiful cat, and they're just sitting there, and she's being read a history lesson about William the Conqueror. William the Conqueror, who is the foundation of medieval England, who forms the first English kingdom that would go on to become the great nation of England known to today. And it's presumed then, by virtue of this, by logically following, that Alice is English. And she couldn't give a fuck about this lesson. 
She is sitting there just daydreaming, talking to her cat, imagining a world that's different from her own. She is challenging the basic assumptions of this lesson that history is important right from the beginning. And based off of her challenging the conventions in front of her, she is ultimately led to the white rabbit and down the rabbit hole into a world where the presuppositions, the logical conclusions or the logical uh, foundation by which we reach conclusions is no longer stable. Everything that we agree upon when we go into a scenario is gone. That's from how to say hi to someone to how to get dry when you're wet, you know, to how to have a cup of tea to uh, how to clean a chimney. All of these basic things that we take for granted in our society that we assume are logical are gone. Yeah. And here comes the satire. Once you remove the presupposition, once you remove the assumptions, we are left to ask what actually is logic? Yeah. What is logical? It's logical to have a tea party in which you celebrate someone's birthday. But what about when someone's not born? What, what if we celebrate that? It's logical to assume that a half a cup of tea is from the bottom up half. Well, what if you chop it down the center and then pour it? Is it still not half a cup of tea? And once we remove these presuppositions, we are left in this world where our assumptions about logic, in particular around human behavior, no longer seem to jive. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And what's interesting about uh, Alice kind of spurning her lessons at the beginning of this and claiming that she wants to enter a world that is only nonsense because she prefers that to the logic of her lessons is that once she gets there, we see that she has internalized a lot of the lessons about logic that she has learned from the world she inhabits. She continues to purport herself like a perfect Victorian little girl, and she confronts all of the attacks upon her with, I'm just a little girl, I'm an Alice. But the episodes all confront her with a syllogism. So the first one uh, that she really gets confronted with is the lizard with the ladder, right? So she is in this house, and she grows too big for the house, and everyone assumes she's a monster, because she makes loud noises and monsters make loud noises. And they she's make, huge. And she's huge. They make a syllogism that says monsters are loud, large things. This thing is loud and large. Therefore, this thing is a monster. Alice is like, no, I'm an Alice. And she confronts this time and again. You'll see this when she uh, encounters the flowers who really like her until she's like, I'm not a flower. And they're like, well, if you're here and you're not a flower, then you must be a weed. Yeah. All things in the garden are flowers or weeds. Right. You so, are now a flower. Therefore, you are a weed. Yeah. So they're working from a skewed set of assumptions that excludes the idea of little girl that says uh, all we know is what lives in the flower bed. Much later, the or just after this, the pigeon uh, assumes that she is a snake because she has a long neck and she doesn't deny that she eats eggs. Therefore, she is a serpent because the pigeon is working from a set of assumptions that is skewed and biased towards uh, protecting her eggs from snakes. So this is Alice confronting uh, things like confirmation bias, confronting... Uh, worlds where there are uh, miscommunication, where there's logical fallacy at the heart of every single person. 
And what I think this is really doing, what I think Lewis Carroll was doing, was saying, hey, there's confirmation bias and logical fallacy and misinformation and disinformation in Victorian society, in our world. Our world is ridiculous. So he's parodying uh, the things that you see on the ground in this world that we consider to be perfectly logical and saying, well, what's the difference between that and total nonsense? Can I share a quote for you? Yeah. Um, so there is a ton of ink spilled on Alice in Wonderland oh my out God, there. Oh, God, yeah. In particular, how Alice pertains to philosophy and social science. And so I can't pretend to be an expert on it. I thought I knew my shit until I started researching <laughs> this podcast. There's so much to say. And I think we will have to talk about the cultural and intellectual impact of Alice in Wonderland. For sure. Because I do think it is more significant um, in one, in certain respects than our previous works. In other respects, the previous Disney ones have a bigger impact. But um, this comes from, there is a, a book in, in which the book was called Alice and Wonderland and Philosophy, Curiouser and Curiouser. Now, in this book, there are a series of different essays by different prominent philosophers who tackled one aspect or another of Alice in Wonderland. And I'm going to pull an expert, an excerpt, pardon me. It's a little long, so I apologize in oh, advance fine, yeah. for the length. This was written by two philosophers, George A. Dunn and Brian McDonald. Quote, when it comes to the curious conditions of Wonderland, Alice's efforts to make sense of the nonsensical pay off with dividends. But that's because the nonsense is only provisional, only on the surface, beneath which a diligent investigator like Alice is able to discern perfect, intelligibly, per, pardon me, perfectly intelligible, albeit unexpected, rules of cause and effect. Ooh, yeah. Once Alice has learned what these rules are, she can count on them to operate as dependably as any laws of nature that obtained in our world. They only seem nonsensical to us because our experience of our world above ground and on this side of the looking glass has burdened us with a slew of preconceptions about what can and cannot be accomplished by investigating the caps of gilded fungi. It is Alice's credit that she doesn't hesitate for a moment to discard her preconceptions when she comes across situations that patently refute them. In doing so, she displays an admirable readiness to encounter reality on its own terms, a receptive cast of mind that many philosophers would include among the most important intellectual virtues or character traits that assist in the discovery of truth. End quote. I, I love that so much. And one of the things I think that it, it, that quote doesn't necessarily say explicitly, but I think is implicit in it, is that we are dealing with a perceptive and inquisitive child, too. So our set of assumptions and preconceptions that we impose upon reality is a, a symptom of adulthood that Alice isn't yet victim to. Alice is receptive, like that quote says. And a few other things that I like about the quote, because I'm in agreement with that, is that there are these preconceptions, these presuppositions to logic that we carry into situations and scenarios that Alice doesn't. Now, it's important to mind that that quote is in response to the literature and not the movie. Right. Because I think in, the movie does have a different stance. In the movie, the, the kind of lesson is like, hey, don't be too curious because you could end up like an oyster and be eaten. Right. But I do think what it's ultimately saying about our conception of logic 
and about our conception of what is the tangible real world and what is and isn't acceptable and what is appropriate and not appropriate behavior are fucking made up. Yeah. Like, are completely superfluous. And when Alice isn't bound to them, when it's purely just cause and effect, I say this to this thing, it causes this thing, such as the Dormouse. I say the word cat, not a hostile or threatening world word in our world, but in Wonderland could send a mouse into a psychotic frenzy so crazy that the only thing that would seduce said mouse is jam on its fucking nose. Then next time you say the word, you say C-A-T instead of cat. Her learning the cause and effect of this world, she accepts the reality rather than say, no, 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 this doesn't make sense. You're not supposed to do it this way. Another good example of this with her just accepting the raw reality is when she gets both sides of the mushroom from the, um, yeah. Um, the, from the caterpillar, from the caterpillar, pardon me. Yeah. The tele telemahuka smoking caterpillar where the first time she eats it, she grows way too big. That's when she has the encounter with the pigeon who right. accuses her to be a serpent. Then she eats the small one that gets way too small. And what does she learn to do with the big one? Instead of eating a bite, she licks it. Yeah, it's a science experiment. And then she learns the cause and effect and says, you know what? None of this makes sense, but I'm in this world. I'm perceiving this as to be real. So this is obviously what I need to do here. And in that, she develops a new form of more untainted logic, I would say. Yeah, well, she exhibits these qualities of problem solving and adaptability that I think uh, the first scene of the movie uh, kind of doesn't hint that Victorian education was giving her, or at least that her education was giving her. Uh, we get the sense very early on that she is a well-off, well-educated, aristocratic young woman and that her lessons consist of rote memorization and recitation. And she's challenged to recitations a couple of times while she's in Wonderland, and she can't really do it. She doesn't really remember all of the things that she's supposed to have memorized. But when it comes to problem solving, when it comes to in the moment uh, deducing, when it comes to using logic to puzzle out uh, the way through her situation, she's extraordinarily capable of doing that. So she has, I think, a more valuable skill than rote memorization, a more valuable skill than being able to recite uh, Cicero or the Battle of Hastings. She's able to get herself out of jams. One other thing I'd like to say about the logic of Wonderland and as it pertains to the satire implicit in Alice in Wonderland and its critique of Victorian-era England and hence our own America at right. this time. This is from another uh, very interesting book, and it's from uh, a book called From When Alice Wittgenstein, sorry if I mispronounced that, and Russell meet at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Quote, It would be lovely if there was a logic or science of human interaction which could solve all the contradictions we suffer interacting with others. But human life would be hardly recognizable. Interactions are often open-ended, and confusing for us all. Though we can become more familiar with them, more at home in the ways we continuously become confused. Looking at Wonderland this way can lead us to a greater understanding of the ways that we understand and misunderstand each other, showing us the forms of life we share and the ways we have been playing these games. Wow, yeah. In other words, it would be simple if we were Vulcans. And if we were Vulcans and there was a logic order to all behavior, this would be easy. 
and it would be simple and we'd be able to have social science and social scientists tell us exactly what to do and how to do it at all times. And there'd be no pain, strife, hunger, or war. But yeah. we don't live in that world. It's fucking confusing. Sometimes you sit down at a tea party and you don't know what song is being sung. Sometimes you just like want a piece of candy and suddenly become a fucking giant and accidentally murder a lizard. Even though <laughs> you're not trying to murder the lizard, poor motherfucking Bill, but you murder the lizard because you sneezed, you know, and sometimes you encounter a dodo who is telling you the only way to stay dry is to sing a sing to my song and drown yourself. And that's how you get dry. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about the dodo and the drying. I, th- can I think I, we should. Can yeah. I dive into that particular before, scene? Before you do, I just want to point out that in uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, it's generally assumed that the dodo is uh, supposed to be a caricature of the author himself because his name was Dodgson, so Dodo is sort of similar, and because he had a stutter, uh, he wrote that into the character in the book. Interesting. I just want to preface it with that. I I found re-watching this movie, the scene in which the Dodo is on top of a rock, he's got a fire, race, yeah. and he is warming himself, and he is leading a chorus, singing a song, just running in a circle, and as he is getting warm by the fire, the waves keep hitting and everyone else gets dry. And then he sees Alice and Alice, he goes, you know, you'll never get dry that way. You've got to get up and run. And she goes, uh, how's it possible to get dry? And he goes, nonsense. I'm dry as a bone. Pointing out the logical fallacy of Aristilian um, logic. Yeah. Saying they're running and that's the major premise. The minor premise, I am dry, hence running gets me dry, which is not at all what's happening. But I read that as the dodo, as the authority figure, using a melody and a song to manipulate others into, into thinking they're drying themselves, when in reality, they're just getting soaked. And here he is atop of a rock, reaping the benefits as the leader of the song. In other words... It's the powerful yeah. manipulating the powerless. Yeah. It's manipulating those that don't understand their circumstances and just using a good trick in a song to say, okay, you know, you guys will get dry and just keep running around in a circle. Meanwhile, I'm going to sit up here with my fire and just completely warm myself. And we see the dodo again when Alice gets completely big and the dodo just instantly is just like, okay. Who weaker among me can I manipulate in this scenario to fix it? The first is Bill, the lizard with the ladder who tragically gets killed. And then the next, he's just like, oh, this is simple. Just burn this fucking place down. We see that the Dodo is kind of a sociopath. (laughs) Yeah. And this is the first introduction that we get to how people with power in Wonderland operate. We see other examples of this in the walrus. And then ultimately culminating in the mad queen who just wants to decapitate anyone and everyone at any point in any time. There's a element to wonderland that to me reads as a cautionary tale about the ruling class, about what the ruling class in particular, the ruling English class does with their power and how that power can be pretty corruptive and how they manipulate those either through trickery and song and spectacle or through, hey, I've got the skills to do this, 
So you're going to come to me as the leader, as the dodo leader, and the leader is a dodo, right? What does that tell us? An extinct animal. An extinct animal, bird, yeah. Right? Then it, then it goes from the extinct animal to the mad queen. And I think there is a, like, like harsh criticism of British upper class happening within this, this, this tale. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Um, yeah, I think there's also this element, too, of every encounter that Alice has uh, seems to be with, um, they're all anthropomorphic animals, except for the queen, but they're all adults, right? And they all have this sort of arbitrary sense of dignity about them, this sense that they are in control of the narrative and their sense that they are in control of the uh, social rules and contracts about their little slice of the pie. So for the Mad Hatter, that's he's just in control of the Mad Tea Party and all of the social contracts that go with that. He controls that narrative. The queen controls her court. The dodo controls the race. Um, and all of them do so with so much circumstance and with so much ceremony that it's really hard to question. And that doesn't feel too far from the reality of the world that we live in today and probably doesn't feel too far from the reality of Victorian England. Uh, the people who are in control have enough ceremony about them. Uh, the adults who are in power have enough bombast about them that why would children question them, even though they seem absurd? And we all eventually grow into that. And Alice encounters in her journey, she encounters two different figures that operate in a Joseph Campbellian sense as sure. the, the mentor, as the Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, yeah. The first are Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And the second is the Cheshire Cat. And they're both very different. And one, the Cheshire Cat is the shadow form. It's the inverse. It is the mentor gone awry. It's the trickster. You think this is the wise cat that's going to help you, but he's literally telling you he's mad. And he orchestrates things for, so that you might get executed. right? But Tweedledee, Tweedledee and Tweedledum sense something about Alice, and they do give her a bit of a warning through their story with the walrus and the carpenter. And in that, I think we can understand Disney's theme a little deeper in this. Yeah. So can we talk about the walrus and the carpenter? I think we should. Let's dive into that because it's one of my favorite segments in the whole movie. And I think it's one of the most iconic. Yeah. And interestingly, the walrus and the carpenter, the poem itself appears in Through the Looking Glass, not in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, but it's absorbed into Alice in Wonderland, just like the Jabberwocky poem is, and it comes from the mouth of the Cheshire Cat. Uh, but it's given as this sort of diegetic uh, uh, fable or morality tale through um, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And I think it illustrates really interestingly the problem of trying to analyze literary nonsense um, because it's really easy, and the movie Dogma did this, actually, in, in fact. Uh, the movie Dogma said the walrus and the carpenter is about the Buddha and Jesus Christ. You have a, a fat character and a carpenter like Jesus Christ. But the reality of how that poem was written is that Lewis Carroll knew he had a meter knew he had a rhyme he had to meet, and talked to his illustrator and said, which of these three-syllable words do you like best? Which one of those would you rather draw? And that's how he chose the carpenter. So there's a level of arbitrariness about those characters uh, that I think is interesting in illustrating the, uh, the problem of nonsense and how we can easily read too much onto it. 
Yeah, no, that's fair. Put a pin on that because I want to come back to it. Great. Let's quickly summarize what happens. She meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They're twins. They're also apparently children. They're in the woods. Or no, no, they're bald, so they're all, they're full men, right? Yeah, it, it's it's pretty they're, ambiguous. They're this weird ageless thing. Yeah. And every time they punch each other, they squeak and conk and honk and do all these weird things. And they really just want to hang out with Alice. They're really happy that there's another human that they can hang out with. And they're trying to entice her to stay and hang out with her. And she says, I can't because I'm curious about seeing this rabbit. Which they say, oh, that didn't work out for the oysters. So they tell her the tale of the oysters and the carpenter. The oyster and the carpenter live in a world that is both day and night simultaneously. They're walking down the beach and the carpenter realizes that there's too much beach. And if they spend about a year, maybe a year and a half cleaning up the beach, the beach will be neater and nicer and there'll be less of it. And the walrus can't have doing any of this work. So he gives us poem about being cabbages and kings and we all know it. It's pretty great. Then while they are playing around on the beach, the carpenter sees a whole family of anthropomorphic, alive, humanized oysters, and he wants to eat them. And he wants to just go right in and get all the oysters. And the, and the walrus is like, hold on, no. He goes down and he entices the baby oysters to leave the ocean and follow him against the advice of the mother oyster who warns against them leaving the ocean. He leads them out. The carpenter builds them a restaurant and then the walrus tricks the carpenter into making a loaf of bread for them in which the walrus eats all of the oysters. And it's horrific. Yeah. The oysters are little baby people. Yeah. They're baby people. They're and adorable. He, and he eats them all in a dark and sinister um, you know, manipulation. And then the carpenter comes out and goes, in one of the most best lines of the whole thing, little oysters, little oysters. But when he called, there were none, for they had been eaten, every one. To which then the carpenter then starts trying to attack the walrus for having eaten their meal. There's a whole bunch of layers. So you mentioned that there's a parable in dogma about them being both different, potentially Buddhists and Jesus and religious figures. What's clear about the Disney adaptation and what it's ultimately trying to say to Alice to telegraph is like your curiosity can get you killed. It could get you eaten. The downfall of the oysters was that they were curious about this world the walrus was describing, and the walrus led them to death. Yeah, they put their trust in a manipulator. They put their trust in someone who seemed interesting and they wanted to follow, but turned out to be uh, a bad guy. Well, Alice's curiosity for the white rabbit leads her to who? The Cheshire cat, who leads her to what? The Mad Queen, yeah. the Queen of Hearts. And she directly parallels this journey that her curiosity leads her to follow someone that ultimately is trying to lead them to her doom. And I think that is the theme of the Disney adaptation, is to be careful with your curiosity. Curiosity can kill the Alice, as it killed the oysters. And I think... That is where, and we see this echoed again when Alice is alone and she is sitting and she is singing the song about how she often gives herself very good advice, but she rarely ever follows it. And she sees this every time she's curious and like, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? I really shouldn't. The advice is 
don't drink from this strange bottle of medicine. But then she does, and she then learns that lesson as all of the animals fade out of existence. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's really the big character moment for Alice in this string of episodes as she's working out these logical puzzles. The big character moment is when she sits and sings herself the very good advice song. And what it's really telling us is that curiosity and inquisition and imagination can be dangerous. And I think, honestly, in the Disney version, giving us that lesson is dangerous in itself. And I think it is antithetical to uh, the purpose of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Um, Go on, yeah, please. I think that Alice was... Alice is a cultural icon for a lot of reasons, but Alice is a cultural icon most importantly because she is curious. Because she's a girl who says, I've never seen a rabbit in a waistcoat before. I'm going to follow it down a rabbit hole and I'm going to chase it to wherever it goes. She exemplifies these qualities that are so anti-Victorian, where she is encouraged to be clean and good and pristine and proud and quiet and seen and not heard and to recite and to memorize. She is a girl who is more interested in solving problems, who is more interested in dreaming up new worlds and who is more interested in following the path wherever it might go. And I think writing that in uh, in a Victorian world is revolutionary. And I think that Alice's curiosity is a revolutionary act. And I think that Disney is telling us, uh, no, curiosity is dangerous. And perhaps yes. So yes, there is an important lesson to be learned in not trusting every single person who tells you they know the truth. There is an important lesson to be learned about protecting yourself and about not straying too far from the path. But other stories do that. Snow White does that. Sleeping Beauty does that. Cinderella does that. Every fairy tale does that. Little Red Riding Hood does that perfectly. What we needed with Alice was a story that told you that you could do more, that you could think outside the box, that you could learn uh, how to fight on your own and how to survive and how to uh, solve every problem that comes your way. That's a really interesting point, and I do agree with you in almost every way. But for the sake of good podcasting, I'd like to play devil's avocado. Please, please do. <laughs> If you know, if you'll permit me. Yeah. And I'm not going to say this because I necessarily disagree because I think I agree with you, but I just want to offer at least a counter perspective. Yeah. Yes. Encouraging curiosity in particular among girls in their educational path in Victorian London and in the mid 20th century can be read as a revolutionary act. And no, Disney's not really into that in particular mid 20th century Disney. Right. So I think you have a correct beat on that. However, I don't necessarily read Alice in Wonderland, the Disney adaptation, as a condemnation of her curiosity in whole. Great. Okay. I read it as her curiosity got her to Wonderland, and by getting into Wonderland, she needed to learn to a certain extent to appreciate where she was. In that there is a mixture of both curiosity and pragmatism that we all need. Um, So a great example 
of a lesson that Alice needs to learn when she eats the big mushroom in her trial and becomes a giant. She instantly starts cutting down the queen because now no one can stop her because she's a giant. Having forgotten that she also ate the mushroom that makes her smaller and she starts to shrink having made her situation worse. So this is an example of her having learned some of the lessons on the journey, but not all of them, right? She's learned how to deal with cause and effect. She's accepted the nonsense of this world as the way this world works. And she's able to operate logically there and better her scenario, but doesn't fully, you know, she doesn't fully take control of the scenario as she could. Why? Because she's a child, right? Not that she's wrong. So it takes uh, the idea of like, I think there's an element of virtue ethics in this adaptation. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Which is also Aristotelian. Yeah. So Aristotle said that there are certain moral virtues that we should ascribe to, and that's the highest, most moral, most ethical way we could behave. And we see often Alice going, you know, I'm giving myself the right advice, but fuck it, I'm not going to listen to it. She has an inner moral virtue to her, and that she goes through this journey rejecting that inner moral virtue because she has to learn to listen to her conscience. And it's not that curiosity itself killed her, or pardon me, not killed her, but brought her into these horrible scenarios and almost killed her. It's that she ignored her internal inner conscience that brought this about for her. So I think there is at least a a counter-read that, yeah, Curiosity got her here, but you got to be a little bit curious, but don't, don't forget to listen to your inner conscience on your journey. I think that's fair. Um, I think that's about how you read like her, her internal messaging, because I read her internal messaging as follow that right white rabbit. Um, and that counter read says her internal messaging is be good and make the right decision. Um, so there's just a, a, a different kind of way to interpret it. In other words, it says more about how terrible it is to read history to a seven-year-old about William the Conqueror and ask them to memorize poems. Of course, they're going to be bored and daydream about white rabbits. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, like, of course, that's what's going to happen. You know, they're, they're, that's a bad system in which to educate people in, but not necessarily that it's wrong for her to be curious. It's only curiosity self-destructive curiosity, I think we could all admit would be bad. Like a baby might be curious what happens if they stick a fork into a socket. Right. And you still have to stop them from doing that. But if they're curious on how to read, you encourage that. Yeah. I think with Alice, she's her, her curiosity is not being fanned in the right way, which leads her to maybe stick her finger into that socket. She's overcorrecting because she's being stifled by this Victorian education she yearns for more nonsense than she can actually handle. And what she and every child has to learn is that there's a healthy amount of curiosity while you should also exhibit caution. And not that you're incorrect in reading this, that, hey, this is Disney, and they are making her curiosity a little more dangerous than they needed to. And is there a conservative, inherent anti-feminist read on this? And like all classic Disney... Absolutely. Of course there is. Absolutely. Walt Disney was directly involved. <laughs> yeah, of course he wanted the little girl to just go to school and do what she's told. Yeah. Because that's what he believed all little girls should do. Yeah. Totally, 100%. Awesome. Should we move on to talk a little bit about the cultural impact and the legacy of Alice in Wonderland? Yeah, because I do think 
there is a bit of a different legacy from Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and Alice in Wonderland. I think Snow White and Sleeping Beauty helped establish the concept of the Disney princess. And that is hugely impactful in American culture, in particular for young girls growing up that are often confronted with and have to conform to and understand and dialogue with the Disney princess. And I think that shapes millions of lives and that's hugely impactful. But Alice in Wonderland has a different non-Disney legacy. Yeah, I, I think uh, just starting with the impact that Lewis Carroll's work has had on language uh, is an interesting place to start because while he maybe didn't contribute so much as Shakespeare to the way that the English language works, he did contribute a lot. There are certain things that are common in everyday parlance that I say every day probably multiple times, like falling down the rabbit hole or following the right white rabbit or mad as a hatter or mad as a March hare, things that come directly from Lewis Carroll that uh, have become cultural touchstones for all of us in the way that we communicate with one another. Yeah, and I think there is something to be said with um, 60s musical artistic counterculture. In particular, I'm thinking of Jefferson Airplane and the song White Rabbit adapting and adopting Alice in Wonderland as a narrative about experimentation with psychedelic drugs. Yeah. That I think is worth also mentioning, giving it this other countercultural life. And let's be honest, every time Alice consumes something, something weird fucking happens. Yeah. And eating and drinking and consumption of mushrooms and strange liquid are a huge part of the narrative. And while, yes, this was written at a time when a lot of people were recreationally taking opium and laudanum, uh, Lewis Carroll really wasn't. So this is mostly something we're reading backward onto the narrative, but it's all very hard to ignore. And it got a second life and a new life in this sort of 60s counterculture. And there's a caterpillar with multicolored with smoke. <laughs> yeah asking Alice who she is and she's so whacked out of her gourd she doesn't even know her own name. I mean, that sounds like something out of a bad 60s psychedelic trip. Absolutely. It certainly does. And I think it's gotten a an additional narrative meaning based upon the British and American 60s, 70s counterculture that has helped continue its legacy outside of just the standard Disney read and let's be honest about something. Rewatching Alice in Wonderland, which we literally just did, it's fucking weird, man. Yeah. It's not like the other Disney movies. It absolutely stands apart. It doesn't have a traditional structure. It is very psychedelic. I mean, Alice in Wonderland finds herself looking into a bird mirror wearing bird glasses, which make the bird mirror have eyes that look back at her. Yeah. There's weird shit like don't step on the momraths who just go up and show her a path, which is wiped away by a dog whose face is a broom. Yeah. I mean, it just gets completely zany. There's a bird that is hanging that is a cage that has two birds in it that she lets out. Then that bird chases them, swallows them, and puts them back in the cage. That shit's a fucking psychedelic nightmare. And what is... I'm not going to say lost because I think a lot of it still is preserved in the cinematic adaptation of it. But I think a huge part of that is uh, language puns. Right. Uh, 
Lewis Carroll was a student of the French language as well, and there is a joke that he makes in the book about how someone is digging for apples, and in French, the word for apple is palm, and the word for potato is pomme de terre, or literally apples of the earth. So there's this cross-language pun that's happening there. So I think a lot of what he is doing is just casually and slyly sliding in these mathematical, logical, and language uh, jokes that just are so rich that every time we pour over the material or an an adaptation of the material, we find new riches uh, within that uh, wealth of material. Can I go one last point before we wrap up here too? Yeah, for sure. We talked about Sleeping Beauty and Snow White as being mythological in their basic structure in the way that the folk tales could be read as stories about gods and goddesses and spirits. And that with both the women being lost in woods or lost to sleep, there's a reminiscent in particular of the Greek story of Persephone and that resonates most clearly in Snow White. I honestly think all of that is there in Alice in Wonderland as well. There are she's surrounded by imagery of fertility from the white rabbit. Right. Um, she's surrounded by which is known as a pagan fertility symbol. It's why we have them at Easter. Yeah. She is uh, confronted with a queen who does not have children. She goes to a birthday, an unbirthday party rather, which is a celebration of fertility but not fertility. And she's ultimately cast out of her home and goes underground into a symbolic underworld, which is both confusing, hostile, and threatening. And she has to reconcile and navigate and find her way home. And just like in Snow White, where it is the eating of the apple that damns her to eternal sleep, um, Alice is constantly physically changing every time she consumes the food of the underworld. So consuming the food there brought brings about a physical change. And like Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, who are ultimately trapped in eternal sleep, what gets Alice out of this underworld, this wonderland, this bizarre upside down that she's in? She has to also wake from sleep. Wake up from a dream, yeah. And I think it is still playing in this cycle of life, birth, and death. And the first thing I said is that it reminded me of the Odyssey. And the Odyssey is very much the masculine version of Persephone, where uh, Odysseus has to travel through these strange and and treacherous and terrible wildernesses. He eventually actually goes to the literal underworld in order to make his way back home as a beat on the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And Alice in Wonderland still has that basic main mythological structure to it. It is very much about a cycle of life, death, and rebirth. I think that's wonderful. Um, what I, Where I do think Alice in Wonderland uh, departs from a lot of those mythic structures is that at the beginning and the end of this, Alice retains her girlhood. Many of those stories, and especially the story of Persephone, is about uh, a transition from girlhood to womanhood. Uh, leaving the hearth, leaving the home, and entering the home of your husband, uh, whether that is something you consent to or not. It's about the loss of innocence. It is about disobeying and being punished for it. And what Alice is undergoing is a journey that helps to open her mind, helps to uh, change her perspective, but doesn't fundamentally alter her matter. 
doesn't fundamentally make her a woman. And I think there is something uh, transcendent and beautiful about a story where a girl doesn't necessarily come of age. She retains her childish, inquisitive, and uh, wonderful nature. And I, I find that quite heartwarming. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, because Carol is mucking it up. Yeah. Right? He's taking that basic structure. Yeah. I'm sure he is very familiar with Odysseus and Persephone and the, the literary traditions, and he is nonsensicalizing it, which and is he's even a word. Here, he's here helping to invent children's literature. The 19th century is when our contemporary ideas of childhood and what it means to have a childhood first emerge. And children's literature comes onto the scene at the same time as literary nonsense. Uh, and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is considered the first masterpiece of children's literature because finally there were people who were realizing that this is a class of people. Children are a class of people whose minds work a certain way and that way that those minds work is wonderful and we should celebrate it and we should uh, facilitate it and we should give it the food that it needs. Pretty great when you just don't send kids to the mines to work and it's you actually send them to so school. It's so great Pretty when you great. don't send kids to the mines. That's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, what are your final thoughts, if any? Um, I have uh, one fun fact. While you were sharing that stuff about the sort of mythological connotations, um, I was doing a little bit of research on the uh, white and red roses because I saw so much imperial British imagery in this story, and I actually found that there was a myth about roses where Cupid, uh, the Roman god of love, spilled a bottle of red wine onto a bush of white roses, and that's why roses are red. And so that reminded me very much of the painting the roses red segment. So I loved that. Um, final thoughts here. I just want to end with a quote from an essay from 1927 called The Sanity of Wonderland. Uh, it's by George Shelton Hubble for Johns Hopkins University Review. He says, quote, Nonsense holds up to all things the mirror which does not lie. And this dream world, then, is the actual world, the only satisfactory, honest, enjoyable world, end quote. Beautiful. This was by no means the exhaustive conversation. Oh, There's God. so much literature out there. If any of you have additional thoughts, additional commentary, you do know how to reach us. If you want us to ever pick up Alice in Wonderland again and look at it from a different lens, we certainly will because we barely scratch the surface. Yep. We hardly even talk specifics of the story. And uh, until next time, guys, be kind. Be curious. The time has come, my little friends, to, to talk, talk of, of other things. things. Of tablespoons of sealing wax, of cabbages and kings. And while the sea is boiling hot, and whether pigs have wings, Kalu-Kale, I'm here today!
with cabbages and kings. What does it sound like if you actually talk? Because usually that's what you do on a sound check. I don't talk. <laughs> I <laughs> cabbage and king podcast, this motherfucker. I sing cabbages and kings. Isn't that the new podcast, Cabbages and Kings? Cabbages and Kings. Welcome to Cabbages and Kings. I love cabbage. I want to hear how I sounded singing that. <laughs>